0: Well, we look together um, in the passage that we read, John's Gospel, chapter 2, from verses 1 to 11, a passage that I'm sure you know very well. In this passage, we learn about Jesus' authority. We also learn that Jesus gladdens the heart. And we learn that Jesus points us to the good new days to come. This is a story about an embarrassing wedding, a minister who during a marriage service suddenly forgot the bridegroom's name. And in an attempt to get himself out of the embarrassing situation, he looked at the bridegroom straight in the face and with a very ministerial voice asked, in what name have you come here today? Taken aback at this unexpected question, the bridegroom finally answered, "Um, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. Highly embarrassed, the minister leant forward and whispered, tell me your name. Well, this could have been a very embarrassing wedding 2,000 years ago in Cana. However, Jesus stepped into the situation. It could have been really embarrassing For the bridegroom and for his family. Because you see, the bridegroom was responsible for ensuring that there was enough food and wine to go round. And perhaps because Mary was related to the bridegroom, she hears of this potential embarrassing situation. They've run out of wine. And the consequences of that would be hard to live down. The gossip on the street would be ridicule and a sense of shame. Did you hear what happened last week? They ran out of wine. And the wedding would be the talk of the town for all the wrong reasons. Mary goes to her son Jesus confident that he will know what to do. Not that this has been a regular domestic trick that Jesus has performed in Mary's kitchen. But for 30 years Jesus had lived with his mother And when Joseph died, Jesus had taken his responsibilities very seriously. And Mary had found Jesus to be an obedient son who always just seemed to know the right thing to do. He always knew the right thing to say. He was a very resourceful young man. And when Mary comes to him and says, they have no more wine, she knows that Jesus, as he always does, will know the right thing to do. And once again, Jesus does not fail her. But something has changed between this mother and this son. A change takes place between mother and her son in the Native American people known as the Lakota Indians, made famous by the film Dances with Wolves. At around the age of 14, Lakota boys are sent on an initiation test. This involves sitting and fasting on a mountainside. As the boy fasted and trembled alone on the peak, he would hear mountain lions snarl below him and the wolves cry out. In fact, the sounds were made by the men of the tribe, keeping watch to ensure the boy is safe. Eventually, the young man returns to the tribe. His achievement was celebrated. But from that day and for the next whole two years, he was not permitted to speak to his mother. And after two years had been passed, a ceremonial rejoining of his mother and son took place. But now he was a man and no longer under her authority. And this is what happens here. Jesus is no longer under Mary's authority. Before Jesus grants his mother request, he makes this quite clear that he's no longer under her authority. Jesus' mother said to him, verse 3 and 4, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. You see, the time of her, of Mary's authority is over. Mary must lose her oldest son. As Jesus starts out on his ministry, he makes it clear what his future must be. His heavenly father is the one who will determine what he does. Jesus said, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge as only I hear and my judgments are just. For I seek not to please myself, but to please the one who sent me." And when Jesus says, My time has not yet come, he means that his time will not come until he has done the will of the Father. He must be subject to his Father's will, and he must become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then, of course, he will rise again and ascend into heaven. And then at last all authority in heaven and earth will be his, but not until then. It's as Paul says to the Philippians, Therefore, after Jesus ascended into heaven, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. But Jesus, here at Cana, had to make a painful move away from his mother, for he was under now a higher authority, under the authority of God the Father. When we become Christians, we come under a new authority. We are no longer to follow the crowd, and we may have to pull back from relationships that are too intense and not good for us, and that will cause us pain. It's like the coffee shops that are always changing hands in Botanic Avenue. They say on their window, under new management. And so it is for the Christian. We are under new management. Whether we are young or old in the faith, we need to examine our lives prayerfully and ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance, asking, are we doing what pleases Jesus Christ? Help us and show us and lead us that we would walk in the way that Jesus walked. This passage shows us that Jesus was under the authority of God the Father. And as his disciples in 2005, we are under Jesus' authority. Well, secondly, this passage shows us that Jesus gladdens the heart. Now, while we've said we're under Jesus' authority, it's not a straitjacket. The Christian faith is not something dreary or dull. In fact, quite the opposite. In John's Gospel chapter 10, Jesus tells us that he has come to give us life in all its fullness. And this miracle reminds us of that. Now, the Bible is very scathing about the abuse of wine and strong drink. And we certainly live in a culture that simply cannot handle its drink. But sometimes the Bible uses wine to express joy. Psalm 104 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. And so it is that Jesus too, at this wedding feast, gladdens the hearts of the people who are gathered. And so he gladdens all those who welcome him into his life. You see, when we invite him into our lives, he does a remarkable thing in our lives. He brings us his forgiveness. He wipes away all our embarrassments, and I'm glad. He wipes away all our failures, and I'm glad. He wipes away all our sins, and I'm glad. Jesus makes us his new creation when we trust in him. It's thereby as Billy Graham would say, God blesses you real good. He brings us gladness. John puts it in chapter 1, verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. And King David would say amen to that. He would say, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And David had experienced so much, so much hurt and pain in in his life. He knew what it was to let God down. He knew what it was to experience the death of his friend, Jonathan. And he knew what it was to experience the death of his sons. But still he is able to say, my cup overflows. You have blessed me, Lord God, to the point of overflow. You know, sometimes I think we think differently differently but I don't believe that we can say that God is in the business of giving us second best. No, if we take God at his word, we will realize that God is working for the good of all those who love him. And we may have made decisions that we bitterly regret, but somehow God can turn it around. He never gives us second best. And when you think a door is closed to you, well, then another door will open. In the book, The Faith of Helen Keller, we read, Helen Keller, who accomplished so much despite her disabilities of blindness and deafness, was always quick to see the bright side of a situation. Optimism ruled her life, and she challenged others by that spirit. She challenged people not to give up in despair when difficulties arise. She said, when one door of happiness closes, another opens but often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one that has been opened for us. Take heart, God will open a new door. He has your best intentions at the center of his plan. And this text reminds us that Jesus gladdens our hearts. Now, after saying all that, I don't want to minimize the hurt and pain that so many people face. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't need to look back, pining after past days, saying, if only, if only, if only it could be like that again. And there are plenty of people who will do that for us, telling us about the good old days and what might have been if only. In a song called Tell Me About the Good Old Days, the Judds, a mother and daughter, country and Western singers, they sing these words. They they sing, did lovers really fall in love to stay and stand beside each other come what may? Was a promise really something people kept, not just something they would say? Did families really bow their heads to pray? Did daddies really never go away? Oh, grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Grandpa, everything's changing fast and we call it progress but I just don't want to know. And Grandpa, let's wander back into the past and paint me a picture of long ago. There's so much pain, so much looking back, so much regret. But this miracle is different because Jesus is telling us not about the good old days, but the good new days that are to come, that are in the future. Verse 11 says, This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. And thus he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Why is this sign or miracle so important? We, we could ask, why didn't Jesus start with a real dazzler of a miracle? Why couldn't he have walked on water? Why couldn't he have raised Lazarus from the death dead? Wouldn't that be a great way to start his ministry? Why this miracle? Well, in the context, John tells us in chapter 1, two or three times, that Jesus is the promised Christ or the promised Messiah. And many of the big promises made in the Old Testament relating to the Messiah speak of a new creation and of a bridegroom coming to his people. Let me read this Prophecy from Isaiah. Please listen carefully. In Jerusalem, the Lord Almighty will spread a wonderful feast for everyone around the world. It will be a delicious feast of good food with clear, well aged wine and choice beef. In that day, he will remove the cloud of gloom and the shadow of death that hangs over the earth, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. You see, at this wedding feast, Jesus fulfills this extraordinary prophecy. He is going to eradicate death forever and a glorious feast with wine in abundance and the shame of the Lord's people will be removed. It's a picture of a new creation, one of heaven, where Jesus will call all those who trust in him to join him at that great feast. Jesus will come as the bridegroom, as the host of the feast, and make all things new. You see, Jesus, we notice at this feast, provides for the people. You see, the bridegroom was responsible for, for providing food and wine at the feast. And Jesus comes into this situation and acts as the bridegroom should have. He sorted out the problem. There was no more wine, but Jesus makes provision in this miraculous way. You see, in a sense, you and I stand before God like the bridegroom at Cana. Our lives are wrong. Our lives are an embarrassment. We failed to live up to God's standard. We failed to live up to even our own standards and we could never find peace with God. But Jesus, by dying, provides for us. He provides forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with a holy God. And so it is that Jesus reverses the trend. Verse 10 says, Then he, the master of the banquet, called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guest's have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. You see, this text is saying Jesus is reversing the trend. The new wine has been brought out later. And by Jesus' death and resurrection, the trend has been reversed. The order of this world is life and then death. But now through faith in Jesus, life follows life. And you see, we don't need to lament about the past for the good new days are upon us as we turn to trust in Jesus. Yet they await their fulfillment when Jesus Christ shall return in all his glory. And in that day, Isaiah says, he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever The insults and mockery against his land and people, the Lord has spoken. The early church used to pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, and it thrilled their hearts to think of Jesus' return. Is that our prayer? Does it thrill our hearts to think of Jesus' return? Do we long to see a world put right? Or if you pardon the pun, are we too wedded to this world? May we, in faith and trust, look for the good new days that Jesus Christ has brought and will bring to completion. Amen. Let's pray together.